Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I am David Chen, and with me are... Vinder Hardwar. Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, she is a staff writer at Nerdist.com. Lindsay Romain, welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. Lindsay, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on here. And what we're going to be doing today, we got some emails to discuss that you sent into SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. We also uh, have some what we've been watching. Looking forward to hearing what everyone's been checking out this week. And then we're going to conclude with an in-depth review of Men in Black International. Men in Black International is the film we'll be discussing today. So that's what we've got in store for you. You can find more episodes of the show at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, and a, a, a bunch of good emails came in uh, to us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. Uh, let's read an email that is like light on the spoilers. This email comes in from uh, MJ, who writes in slashfilmcast.gmail.com, uh, love you guys so much. Look forward to uh, every week to your takes on films uh, uh, that I want to see, have no intention of seeing and learning about smaller or hidden films that are not on my radar. So when Devindra recommended Hotel Mumbai because it featured an ass-kicking Dev Patel going all Jason Bourne, and not naturally... Hotel Mumbai. Not Hotel Mumbai. Oh, uh, what is it called? I did not. Yeah, I haven't even seen that movie. I recommended The Wedding Guest. <laughs> so this guy. I think Hotel Mumbai is another movie with uh, Dev Patel. I just haven't seen it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Dev Patel is in that. Um, but yeah, I recommended The Wedding Guest, which is awesome. But is is, is does Dev Patel? <laughs> does Dev Patel? So, uh... Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. Well, yeah, yeah. Slightly racist uh, confusion there. It's it's okay. It's okay. So uh, let me, I just I gotta read the rest of the email. I gotta read the rest of the email so we can try to like. Please get your movies right, people. So I, we, we can like reverse engineer what 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 we're wrong here. Um, yes. So MJ says I naturally thought this might be a nice sit with my wife and I. Now, for some context, my wife can handle some kinds of movie violence, but some she cannot stomach. For example, she loves yeah. the Jason Bourne films, but she abhors violence on screen where innocent people are repeatedly gunned down in graphic detail. So let's play a little game of how I night when I, when I put on this movie. Was it violent? Oh my god, yes. Like John yeah. Wick Chapter 3 level violent. Does it feature innocent people being gunned down for two hours in graphic detail as they yep. plead for their life? Why, yes, it does. But I kept telling my wife to hang in there because Dev Patel was going to kick into Jason Bourne mode any second and kick all the bad guys' asses. Suffice to say, this never happened. Surely Mr. Patel must have taken out a few terrorists, right? I mean, why would Devendra have said this if it wasn't true? In fact, Dev Patel kicks, kicks absolutely no asses in this. He runs, he hides, he helps to save people by being quiet. I it's just almost have one like question. I watched the wrong movie. <laughs> I just have I one this. question for Devendra. What kind of fucked up Jason Bourne movies have you been watching? Listeners, please pay attention to listening comprehension. It is great. It is important because, yeah, I've heard good things about this movie, actually, but I also hear it's very intense. It sounds like the United 93 of uh, terrorist events movies. So, yeah. This is amazing. I just Googled wedding guest Dev Patel, and, and the yeah. image, the, the first Google image result is of him holding a gun, which implies yes, that... him holding a gun with the Clint Eastwood face. Like, at what point... <laughs> And this reader still has not even like finished the movie and did not think maybe this may be the wrong movie. So I, I don't want to rag on you too much. Uh, please see the wedding guest is it is violent, but not not the same level. Like you won't see innocence getting tortured at least. That that is incredible. I thought this was this email was going to be schooling you on today's episode of the podcast, but it turns out MJ Sieber is the one who has been schooled. Uh huh. <laughs> he thought Devinger... Jack Hughes. <laughs> he thought Devinder was talking about Hotel Mumbai. <laughs> Which, for some reason, 
I, I don't think you even mentioned that movie, did you? On that, I, I, I've not. I've never. I've never uttered the words. I didn't even say Hotel Mumbai during my discussion <laughs> of the wedding guest. <laughs> so it looks like MJ, the shoe is on the other foot. Ah, oh, so good. Amazing. Please see the wedding guest and report back what your wife thinks. <laughs> I love how mad he got at watching the wrong movie. It's so great. This is life on the internet, basically. <laughs> You're wrong. Uh, also, MJ Sieber signed the email, sincerely never allowed to pick movies to watch with my wife again. <laughs> so, good job uh, want, uh, burning through that credit uh, for no reason. I want her to hear this part of the show so badly. I yeah. hope she hears it. Uh, Please have your wife write the uh, reply email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible, incredible. Amazing. Okay. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Black Mirror for a second, um, which is the uh, thing we discussed last week instead of Dark Phoenix. Uh, and we reviewed all three episodes of Black Mirror. So, and we're going we're gonna to talk like in brief about the premises and some basic plot points about those episodes. So if you don't want to hear anything about those episodes, um, you got to tune out for like the next couple minutes. Uh, but we did get some emails in response that I thought were really interesting. Lindsay, you have not seen Black Mirror yet. Do you have any interest in seeing it at this point? Honestly, um, it's kind of at the low end of my list of things to catch up on, but I plan to watch it eventually, but I don't there, know. There's some good stuff in there. It's worth watching at the yeah. very least. I would say episode two is, is worth watching. The other two, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> so let's start let's let's start with the easiest one and go backwards. Speaking of people getting schooled via our email address at slash filmcastgmail.com. Um so the third episode of Black Mirror last week was called Rachel, Jack, and Ashley Two. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, you, uh, I think you kind of went on a bit of a rant last week about how you thought Me? that episode was dumb. Me? Um, and how it was extremely silly that, w- that there was this whole uh, subplot about one of the characters being a rat catcher. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and like how the, the villain was comically evil and all that. We got this email from a few people, but this one comes in from Timothy from Los Angeles, who writes in, In your guys' review of Rachel, Jack, and Ashley 2, it was mentioned that the first 30 minutes were great, the second half jumped the shark. Initially, I had the same reaction, but I soon realized, as it was pointed out to me, that the episode was intentionally silly. Let me explain, because this part may have gone well over your heads, having not grown up with Hannah Montana, as, as I unfortunately did. As a millennial growing up in the early 2000s, Disney Channel had a big influence on my generation. Obviously, it's where Miley Cyrus got her start. Throughout the episode, Charlie Brooker establishes several tropes often depicted in D- Disney Channel TV movies. The two cliché dumb male bodyguards, the robot or doll that comes alive, the talent show, the goofy vehicle, the strained sister relationship, the oblivious father, <laughs> the cartoony plot devices, the tragic family backstory, the everybody's happy ending, etc. Now, you guys might have picked up on these points and thought they were so obvious that they weren't r- worth mentioning. But there's even the mouse exterminator plotline. No, it isn't a rat exterminator, as referenced throughout the podcast, which makes the intentionality that it is a mice exterminator seem all the more clear. The entire episode is a commentary on Miley's career, having gotten her start largely because of the mouse machine. Eventually, apart from that overdone cliche Disney Channel formula, to become a more authentic artist losing fans along the way as shown in those final scenes Mm -hmm. with that logic i think a decent criticism is in saying the episode's first and second act should have been flipped should have begun with the disney cliches and deconstruct them along the way instead the episode starts with the black mirror cliches and adapts the disney formula in the second half a bit weird either way but i found that interesting that's really cool actually though Yeah. yeah See, it was intentionally bad. But the thing is, like, uh, uh, we did point out it was silly, and I think it's silly in a fun way. I just didn't realize it was Hannah Montana power. Yeah, basically. I mean, like, if it, if it really – I have not seen a single episode of Hannah Montana, but if it really did imitate Hannah Montana tropes 
as di- is discussed in several emails to us, then yeah. I do think that is a little clever. I do think that's a little clever. I agree. I just wish it added up to something. Mm. You know, I, I feel like maybe if I was a Hannah Montana aficionado, it would have uh-huh. added up to something. I doubt it. I don't think that the, I don't think that just aping that style says anything. Yeah. But L- Lindsay, by the way, are you a nine inch nails fan? I'm a nine inch nails fan. I also you, did. You should add... watch that episode first. Okay. Just I did. Just this got me really intrigued because I have not watched the new season of Black Mirror, but I have seen every episode of Hannah Montana. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you, must, you must report back. Yeah. You must report back. Yes, yeah, that I episode will. specifically. You are, you are our, uh, our Hannah Montana whisperer. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Okay. Uh, we got one other email about the first episode, Striking Vipers, which, uh, for those who don't know, is about these two dudes, one of whom is married – uh, and they find sexual satisfaction by uh, having sex with each other in a VR version of a fighting game. Uh, yep. Yeah, I think I said that all correctly. Um, so that all makes sense. This yes. email comes in from uh, Andy from Scarborough in the United Kingdom, who wrote in to defend the episode. Um, he says, quote, instead of having a specific viewpoint on sexuality, I think the direction of the episode goes is much bolder and more interesting, not to mention less predictable than the treatment of the subject matter would have been. Far from shying away from its themes, I believe the ambiguity of the relationship the two central men share from the very beginning of the episode is both intentional and integral to what I see as the episode's thesis, that in the future it is not only the definition of sexuality we may be questioning, but the very nature of human relationships. The question mm-hmm. the episode poses is, are we changing social mores of our world, coupled with the way technology has forever altered how we communicate with each other, making rigidly categorized, traditionally defined relationships obsolete? Um, so yeah. And that's I'm what gonna... I wanted it to be about. That's what I was hoping it would be about. Yeah. The, that's the idea. That's the idea being floated around. I wish. I don't think it succeeds. Yeah. there You could argue that. Yeah. Be- because the idea, the idea being that like technology can fundamentally reconfigure our expectations for marital relationships. I mean, I think that's like, th- that is the revolutionary idea behind the episode. That mm-hmm. I don't know that it fully lands, but I th- I think per what Andy intro- says in his email, it introduces that idea certainly. Like it, it there's enough yeah. there that you understand. Like oh yeah, there are world altering implications for this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did mention in the review, like I think that was one of the strongest parts of the episode: the fact that it at least does this without any judgment in a way. Like it, it is just kind of matter of fact, and I can appreciate that. It didn't poke fun at this idea; it treated it in a really um, intentional way. Yeah. Well, Andy says here, uh, quote, maybe we're wrong to expect to find a partner who satisfies every impossibly disparate romantic and platonic criterion we ask of them. So we compromise. We find the closest match we can to our ideal partner, but technologically, we're already at a point where that compromise no longer needs to be made. Could then a future exist where, first and foremost, we partner with a human being we feel the deepest connection with, regardless of gender or sexuality, leaving sexual needs to be satisfied by the virtual world where we can design a partner that aligns completely with our every specific desire? Or perhaps the episode is an indictment of long-term relationships in general. 
The reason mm-hmm. why relationships are complicated and so often don't work is simply that they're a social construction we are biologically not equipped to implement well. Uh, a line of thought which could put Striking Vipers thematically much more in line with something like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Anyway, I think any single episode of TV that deals with the concept as weighty as the social feature of the human race deserves a little more than just the fighting wasn't as good as Scott Pilgrim's fighting, as true <laughs> as that statement undoubtedly is. And There was a lot of praise in our review of that episode. Come I- on. I, I I think that is a very smartly written email, yes. and I would yeah. love the episode to have <laughs> landed those ideas yeah. in a better way. I want I would love a science fiction story to make me think of that. I think this episode got in its own way if that's what it was intending because it didn't it didn't get there. It just it, it everything was rushed uh, and it it was too goofy to make me go there intellectually. I, I, yeah. I feel like it, the, the potential was there, but it, it gets in its own way with the, the sort of goofy concepts. And, you know, I, I don't know. I would love that. I would love those themes to be explored. I think that's really a fascinating side of where we might be heading with technology, but I don't think this episode achieved it. All right. Well, those are our thoughts in reaction to your thoughts in reaction to our thoughts on black mirror, <laughs> Season 5, which we discussed last week on the Slash Filmcast. Thanks for writing into Slash Filmcast at gmail.com. Some great emails this week. Let's get on with the show and talk about what we've been watching. Lindsay Romaine, uh, you've been watching something interesting, haven't you? Yeah, so I've seen uh, The Dead Don't Die, the new Jim Jarmusch movie. In this peaceful town, on these quiet streets, something terrifying, something horrifying is coming. Excuse me, we're closed. Get away from me! What the hell was it? A wild animal? This is really awful. Maybe the worst thing I've ever seen. What was it, wild animals? So what are you thinking? I'm thinking zombies. I've seen it twice now, which is rare for me these days to see anything more than once. But um, I really love this movie. And it's been kind of an interesting conversation because most people I've talked to that have seen it did not (laughs) like it so much. It's very, like, very dry and strange. It's basically his take on the zombie genre um, about a zombie invasion in a small town called Centerville. Um, And it's just, if you've seen a Jarmusch movie, it's you kind of know what to expect, which is just very kind of, like, slow, funny, dry... Uh, very meta. Um, it's got Adam Driver and Bill Murray as these small town cops who just kind of like have to deal with this invasion in very, very like simplistic ways. It's very, very weird. And if you don't vibe with it, you're probably not going to have any kind of reaction to it. Like the audience I saw it with, I think was kind of like a little bit stunned uh, by how much it doesn't like really go anyplace, but I really loved it. Uh, yeah, I I loved it enough to see it twice, and the second time I caught a lot of a lot of little things that made me think it was even more genius than I thought the first time. What was uh, like some more some of your favorite aspects of uh, the Dead Don't Die? Yeah, well, I really liked. It's funny because it does it does creep on you. It's very very slow, but it is sort of. I feel like it's having all of these sort of commentaries on how when there's incoming problems, these sort of things hanging over us on a global aspect, you know, global warming, the movie talks about fracking a lot, all of these things that 
are big subject matters that we just kind of like ignore or don't pay attention to. It uses the zombie genre to kind of explore how humans just don't care about something until it's literally like eating their face off. (laughs) So um, I thought it was a really smart commentary on that kind of thing. Um, it's also just like loaded with cameos <laughs> that delighted me. There's a really great like Carol Kane, Iggy Pop is oh, in it. Oh wait, wait, wait. let's Waits. not spoil. Let's not spoil too many. Of the oh, that's in the. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. It's in the trailers and everything. These guys yeah, watch trailers, so spoilers get really, uh, really tricky <laughs> around here. Yeah, sorry. I guess they're. I wouldn't even really call them cameos, but there's they're parts. But yeah, there's. It's just a lot of fun stuff. If you're a Jarmusch fan, I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, I don't know how it ranks for me, but. Uh, I honestly, I've seen it twice now. It's definitely up there as one of my favorite movies of the year. I oh, can't wait for this. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. That's the dead. Don't die. It's uh, playing in limited release right now. So check it out. Lindsay's seen it twice, which is rare. Uh, how many movies have you seen twice this year? I think this is the first one actually. Oh no. I saw, I've seen Endgame twice also. Oh, so yeah. I saw yeah. Endgame twice. I've seen John wick three twice. Devendra, you seen any movies twice this year? This year? No. Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, guess, no. I wasn't even going to ask Jeff. The, so The dads <laughs> haven't seen any movies twice, everybody. Yeah. It's a privilege for me to see a movie once. Yeah. Okay. That's how I live. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, that's The Dead Don't Die. That's what Lindsay's been watching. Ask me how week. much sleep I've had, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had a chance to watch Cold Pursuit finally uh, this week. This is the latest. Yes. Liam Neeson uh, revenge story. And uh, this movie is really weird. Um, I don't know why it's so hard to make a Liam Neeson revenge action film that is thrilling and uh, has great action scenes and shows Liam Neeson being a badass. Uh, I I didn't really quote-unquote get this movie like uh, it's kind of like a dark comedy but i i didn't really feel like that landed particularly well with me um and i i think this movie has like it's introducing subplots throughout the movie at an alarming rate like an hour into the movie there's like characters coming up that i'm like wow like how in god's name are you going to resolve this subplot before the end of the movie and they they more or less do try and tie most of them up, but like not in a particularly satisfying way. I thought this is pretty disappointing. I don't know why it's so hard to just do another take. And the only one that's come close, in my opinion, is like Unknown, which is kind of interesting. But like I've seen every single one of these Liam Neeson action movies, <laughs> and I find most of them to be pretty disappointing. Like I've seen, yeah, but th- this one yeah. is not trying to be another Taken. You know, like that's the thing. I guess it depends on what you're going and looking for, right? Yeah, I mean, it starts kind of as another taken. Yes, you know? yes, and then it, then it sorts of becomes like a commentary on these Liam Neeson revenge movies in a weird way. So it is darkly comedic. I, it, the sense of humor is so specific and weird and yeah. very like. Uh, who's the director? I think he's. Uh, is he a Swedish? He's a Norwegian director, and it feels like the very specific type of like. Uh, you know, Northern European humor, basically. I, I don't know what you'd call it. Um, I will say it's worth a watch because it reminds me of like the uh the Martin McDonough stuff, like just the really sad but darkly funny dramas. Um, I hate the villain in this movie. Who's the actor who plays the villain? Because uh, he seems. Yeah, oh, I'm man. not. I'm not sure. First of all, we should mention that the the director is uh, uh Hans Peter Moland. He also directed the original version of this film. 
yes. uh, that, that Cold Pursuit is based on. Everyone I've tweeted about this with, talked about this with, says like that movie is better than Cold Pursuit. Oh. Um, and that movie is called uh, In Order of Disappearance, which you can actually find on Netflix right now, I believe. Um, so I, I was actually like thinking maybe I should go back and like check out In Order of Disappearance uh, on Netflix because it looks like it could be a better. It's, it's Stellan Skarsgård plays the the main mm-hmm. actor in that mm-hmm. movie. Um, I, I think like compared to the rest of like the the recent Neeson, you know, filmography like of everything trying to be taken again though, I think it does kind of rise above the crap. Like mm-hmm. it's it's more interesting than some of those. Yeah, I'll, I'll grant you it's more interesting. Um, the uh, villain character is played by Tom Bateman, by the way. Oh, um, God. Who plays Viking. Who basically seems like they're making fun of every, like, super evil uh, bad guy who also is trying to be, like, a good dad or something. Like, he, he has a family. <laughs> he has emotions. But, oh, man, that that, that role could have been that, that's handled the thing. so if it, if it was yeah. a meta commentary on these kind of movies, I, I think if it was more explicitly that, then I think I would have enjoyed it yeah. more. But it, it, yeah. it, I just the tone didn't work for me. I will there are many just, things that hold this movie back. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And I'll just say one other thing, which is that this movie has the worst CG uh, in establishing <laughs> shots that I've one of the worst CG establishing shots that I've ever seen. Like I will, I will say this. Uh, yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, well, just like there's, there's like several establishing shots of like here's like the city of Denver, or here's like uh-huh. this mountain, or whatever. And it looks like something that like I could have made using like motion on my iMac at home. You know, like it looks awful. Um, so it's almost ca- like at times like that, I'm like, is this supposed to be bad? You know, uh, I, sometimes I didn't know. I just found the tone of cold pursuit did not work for me. So I will say the setting is really interesting. Cause Liam Neeson plays a guy. He's just the guy who plows the snow. He's Mr. <laughs> plow. Right. And yep. he lives in this like shack on top and, of the mountain. Avenger, and that, na- that name again is yeah. Mr. Plow. Is Mr. Plow. <laughs> okay. uh, but he lives you know, on the shack with Laura Dern and uh, he clears the roads and that's his life. And I think the sense of place of this movie is really fascinating, too, because it's like, first of all, who the hell wants to live there? This guy is basically Superman for this community who goes on a rampage. So I like those little elements because that's not something we've we've never seen a snow plow man go on a revenge spree yet. Uh, you know, so that, that was interesting, at least. I, I mean, I wish... I wish this was the movie you just described. You know, I, I, I wish it was like, oh, yeah, this guy who's like a hero of the city, like becomes revenge murderous. And like, what does that do to the society? You know, like, the movie doesn't care about any of that stuff, in my opinion. Um, so I, I found it to be quite disappointing. All I want is to see Liam Neeson kill some dudes. And I don't know why that's so difficult to get. Um, but whatever. Uh, also, Jeff, you brought up the the Mr. Plow reference. Here's the thing that I've been encountering, and I, I kind of want to hear your guys' thoughts on this, uh, is that, like, I, I, I came to this realization recently that, like, if I ever have a child, I will need them to watch Simpsons Season 1 through 8, Seinfeld, and Arrested Development, or else they will not understand most of my Russ, references. Yeah, you just yeah. won't know how to communicate. Yeah. It'll be this, like, physical barrier between you. Yeah, yeah. that's right. No, yeah, that's- I mean... That's what being a parent is. There's a physical <laughs> barrier between your generations. Yeah. Well, welcome to that. They're not welcome to kid, that. Yeah. You're you're gonna make you're gonna make lots of references that your kid doesn't care about, and to, that kid is gonna go. That's a dad joke. That's a dad joke. Dads <laughs> reference this old show called The Simpsons. Or just wait for it to go retro and then becomes cool again because there are all these stories about like the uh, the generation. What uh, Y or Z kids? I don't know what we're on now, but the kids who are growing up post nine eleven, who are growing up with The Office, and that is their cultural touchstone, 
and kids are obsessed with The Office because it was on Netflix as they were growing up. And I guess either their parents watched it a ton or they did or something, which is sort of like how maybe we grew up with the, the Wonder Years or something in the 90s or 80s like that. It is sort of that, I guess. And that's kind of funny. Also, Jeff, uh, The Simpsons being an old show. I mean, that show is literally still on the air as far as I know. Yeah, well, we all know that talking about the old stuff. Yeah, your references are all through the first eight seasons, like mine are. Yeah, you know? fair enough. It's the it's the Conan O'Brien years that we all reference. Yeah, uh, Lindsay Romaine, uh, do you have any kind of like t- cultural touchstones that, like, if someone wants to get you, they need to have watched all these things? Well, it's funny as you were saying The Office because I used to watch The Office like live. I don't have that Netflix thing, right. but I do have a lot of like jokey things that I say that are directly from that. I think for me. The thing I reference absolutely the most is Parks and Recreation. Mm. Like, I probably, <laughs> throughout the day, make at least four or five Parks and Rec jokes. So, I guess that's my my office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think what's clear from this conversation is all four of us on the podcast have excellent taste. Um, yes. You know, between <laughs> Parks and Recreation, The Office, The Simpsons, uh, Seinfeld, and Rest Development. I mean, you know. I- I thought you were going to say uh, what's clear is that Lindsay is markedly younger than we are. <laughs> she has, she's like, yeah, I'm down with um, uh, Miley Cyrus. Uh, I know, uh, I know the, I my show be... references are in the last five years. It's, yeah. I should be very clear with the Hannah Montana thing that I was definitely way too old to be watching. That. <laughs> I think I was in college. So <laughs> fair enough. Uh, fair enough. Yeah. I uh, just, well, yeah. That's what I've been watching. That's Cold Pursuit. Uh, Devendra, what have you been watching? Yeah, a couple of things. But actually, speaking of being out of touch with the kids, uh, I just remember this. I just saw the first episode of Euphoria on HBO. And holy hell, I just feel I feel so old. Uh, David Ehrlich, uh, basically, he tweeted the uh, the thing of Matt Damon turning into old Matt Damon from Saving Private Ryan. Like, that's how I feel watching the show, because it is it is a show about teens and uh, the teens are not all right. They're they're not good. Um, <laughs> it's about the suburbs and things are bad in the suburbs. And it stars Zendaya as a girl who uh, who's going through a lot. He's, she's coming out of rehab. Um, she has drug issues. She has parental issues. She has behavioral issues. Like it's all sorts of things. But it's a show about basically kids struggling to just maintain some sense of normalcy in the suburbs today. And holy hell, does it make me feel old because uh uh, I, I, t- I like to watch high school shows and movies just for fun. It kind of gives me a fleeting sense of being back in high school and seeing a life that I never really had. So I really like Riverdale. You know, that's a fun yeah. show. That's a fun romp. This show is like Riverdale on acid. No romp. No it's romp. A, it's a romp. Uh, there are there, there's a lot of sex. There's a lot of nudity. I feel kind of weird seeing this sometimes uh, on a show about high school kids. Uh, there, there are a lot of penises which is probably good for the people who complain about not getting enough penises in Game of Thrones. I hear the show is going to have quite a bit of that. Uh, but it's a, lot of, it's a lot of weird stuff. I think um, based on the first episode, uh, it's going really hard into being like very stylish and cinematic in ways. It reminds me, uh, I was talking with people about this on Twitter, it's kind of Gaspar Nui in terms of style. Uh, but in terms of like what they're going, it's almost like Harmony Corinne's kids. It is about like the harsh life some kids are going, like some kids are leading. Basically, uh, at the same time, it feels almost like a neo-noir. It has kind of like brick elements, too. So I'm very interested. It just makes me a little uncomfortable uh, to see some of these people in like sexy situations. It's very weird. Like Maud Apatow, Judd Apatow's daughter, is uh-huh. in this show. It is rough. It is very rough. 
seeing somebody who we saw, you know, growing up uh, as a child in some movies uh, in in not so great situations. So it it's a big experience, but I think it's worth watching if you're up for it. All right. Uh, that's Euphoria. I saw the trailers. You know, HBO has been advertising the hell out of yeah. this. It's so uh, stylish. Yeah, it looks, it looks great. And I also have no interest in watching it whatsoever because I, it's <laughs> not even like I have kids and I'm like, this could equip me for what the kids are going through. It's like, this is just a way to stress myself out for no, you know, yeah. like, I'm just like, mm. it'll stress you out. It'll stress every parent the hell out. I'm like, <laughs> oh, God, I, I don't know how this yeah. is going to go in a couple of years. We should say there's a couple comments in the chat room. Uh, Martin is is correcting your pronunciation of I think Jarmush. Is it Jarmush? It's oh, Jarmush. Jarmush. Um, so apologies for that. Uh, also Walter Chaw, who wrote a oh, scathing boy. scathing review of Men in Black International. Um, so I I think he might be here for a review of that. Uh, he says uh, Hans Peter Mullen done some really incredible stuff with Stellan Skarsgård. Uh, Zero Kelvin and Aberdeen are classics, the latter particularly for Lena Headey fans. Uh, I have not seen any of Hans Peter Mullen's other stuff, but um, I am going to try to check out An Order of Disappearance and also Zero Kelvin and Aberdeen sound like they are great as well. Sounds good. Always uh, a fan of checking out Lena Headey's other work uh, beyond Game of Thrones. So, uh, Okay, Devinder Hardwar, uh, what else have you been watching? Yeah, a couple more things. Uh, I saw Don't Look Now for the first time, the Nicholas Rogue film. That is, uh, I, I feel like a lot of people have heard about it. It's something I've been meaning to see for a while. And I'm trying to just, since I have the Criterion channel, I'm trying to do at least one like older film per yeah. week or something. Trying just to eat to your keep vegetables myself. every week. Yeah, Excellent. it's good. I mean, it's fun. I'm having a lot of fun with it, too. It's just hard. I, as I talked about before a couple episodes ago, I love the curation of Criterion Channel. So they, they kind of just led me to this. And I was like, oh, this is a good Father's Day movie. This is a movie about... Uh, a daughter being killed accidentally and a mother, a husband, and wife trying to deal with the aftermath of that. Um, it is, it is incredibly stylish. I found it incredibly compelling too, because I guess it counts as a horror movie. And I think up until like the very final minutes, it doesn't really seem like one. Like uh, it's a movie about grief. It's a movie about them coming to terms with uh, their daughter drowning in a pond near their home. Uh, so they go to Venice for work. Because it's sort of like imprisoning yourself in the thing that killed your child. Uh, There's a lot going on with this movie, like visually and symbolically. I think the editing is kind of fantastic. There is an extended sex scene between Donald (laughs) Sutherland and Julie Christie in this, where I believe people thought it was real at one point, like unsimulated or or, yeah, not simulated and just like them going at it. But it's cut in such a way that... uh, I know I found really interesting for its time. It reminds me of the uh, was it the out of sight sex scene where mm-hmm. there's a lot of cutting in between the action of people just staring at each other in this movie. It's them like trying to it's a really involved sex scene. It goes on for a while, but it's also them trying to like maintain this connection when they're slowly drifting apart. Uh, all just very fascinating. Definitely worth a watch. Um, this is the sort of thing I love just having on demand with the Criterion channel. So there's my little ad for that service. All right. That's Don't Look Now. I actually have the the Criterion Blu-ray. I just recently bought it. I can't wait to check it out. Yep. And uh, what else have you been watching, Devendra? Just briefly, also on the Criterion channel, uh, I saw Kylie Blues several weeks ago. And this is an independent film by Gan B. And it's sort of like... I guess it's sort of also a neo-noir type thing uh, set in village in China. It's about a guy who 
is a doctor and he's looking he's a doctor who was in prison for a while a kind of struggling guy but he's off to find his nephew that he thinks his brother may have like sold off to somebody so he's on a search for his nephew uh, throughout the countryside uh, it's a it's a weird movie this is one of those movies where it kind of reminds me of Jim Jarmusch stuff where it just takes its time. Some scenes kind of go on forever. Uh, but I found the style of it really interesting. Like he, it, it doesn't feel like a noir type film, except it really is. Cause it's somebody like searching for truth uh, in a world that doesn't quite make sense. And this film is also famous for, I believe uh, it has a long take that lasts 40 minutes and it's oh. insane. It's insane to see them do this on a really low budget thing. Uh, it's kind of rough. You can tell that uh, they didn't have the best equipment in the world. Like they literally just like threw a camera on a motorcycle and followed, you know, actors throughout a scene. Um, the camera like moves with them uh, inside and outside. So like there's lighting adjustments that don't quite happen on time. Uh, there, there are times where you could tell the cameraman is struggling to walk through like a gravelly road or something. But I think that all kind of adds something to it. Uh, it's a really interesting film. Uh, throughout that whole sequence, the film almost becomes like a weird sort of time machine where the characters interacting with like their past selves. It's really it's kind of hard to describe. I will say if you're into like the weird, slow, elliptical cinema of like Jarmusch and uh, who's the guy who did uh, Uncle Uncle Boonmi, I think um, it's those types of things. It's slower cinema. It's a slow burn. But I thought it was definitely worth it for sure. All right, so that's Kylie Blues. And Kylie you, Blues by Gonbi, yeah. Yeah, Gonbi, uh, K-A-I-L-I. Um, and it's available on the Criterion channel, right? It is. Uh, yeah, and he just did a he just did a 3D movie with a, an incredibly long 3D long take as well, which I missed in theaters, but maybe we'll be able to see it somehow, yeah. All right, Jeff Kanata, what have you been watching this week? I finally finished uh, season two of Fleabag. I know I talked a little bit about season one when I watched that. But uh, you know, these are very short seasons, six episodes, half an hour each. But it takes me a while to get through things. But um, I, I know we are in, in the golden age of television. But I still uh, don't say this statement very often. Fleabag season two is a work of genius. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that. I, I really think it is a work of genius. It is so perfect. <laughs> so on every level, how it's shot, how it's acted, how it's written, it, it is how it's cast. It is uh, a work of genius. It is incredible. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen a relationship that like the one depicted in season two ever in fiction. It is so different and unique and carves out its own really specific, beautiful, version of a love story, uh, a very complicated one with characters that are so perfectly, uniquely drawn. Uh, I've never seen a character like the one that's introduced in season two. Um, And uh, I mean, the the show was excellent in season one. Excellent. I think season two takes it into masterpiece territory and I'm blown away by how good it is. It Mm -hmm. sounds like we're not getting a season three and that Makes me sad, but boy, does it it's end done. Perfectly. It's done. Yeah, and it's it perfect. ends perfectly. I think. I think that's it. Like that's the great thing about some British TV shows, right? Is like they, they know, know when, when to stop. end. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're really. It's really tight. Like a really small episode count. I think we can say a little more, Jeff. Like it's not a spoiler to say. Like this. This 
season introduces a priest into the storyline played by andrew scott who's also awesome in that uh that second episode of black mirror this season he's phenomenal he's, he's so a, good he's, he's so good in everything yeah. he was great in sherlock i'm surprised we don't see him in more things but this is kind of his year uh but yeah it's uh it builds so much in season one i i was worried they wouldn't be able to live up to season one and it's it's somehow more perfect than season one like it plays with the construct of the show the way she kind of talks aside to the audience it even plays with that and i found that super fascinating so it's yeah, incredible and, go and watch her it. go watch it, it season one it establishes a tone and season two completely changes it. It is a yep. it is a completely different kind of show in season two, but not inauthentic to what has been established from season one. It actually has progression in who these people are and expands the scope of who they're talking about. Is much more interested in the lives of sort of secondary characters from the first season as well. And it, it effortlessly shows how a show can be new and the same at the same time and introduce things, talk about things in ways no one has ever done. I mean, this is great art. This is examining a human behavior and human relationships in a completely fresh way that I've never seen art look at like this. I've never seen a character like this priest ever in, in, in any, in a novel, in a, in a film, in anything. It is, it is fascinating and you fall in love along with these characters and you, it is an extraordinary work and one I think everybody should watch. It's, you know, it's a very adult show, but it is exquisite. Lindsay Romaine, I think you've also seen Fleabag season two as well, right? What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, I share the exact same sentiments. I'm obsessed with it. Uh, I was also very nervous because of the first season. So perfect to me and so dear to me that I was, you know, always have that hesitation, even though I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge and think that she can do no wrong, basically, at this point. But, um, yeah, I watched all... I'm actually... I don't really like to binge, like, anything, but I couldn't not with this show. I watched it all in one sitting and just cried through the whole thing. I My favorite thing about it is that it really shows how grief stays with you in all of these different kind of strange ways that you might not even think. And, like, both... You know, I don't know. It's not to get too much into like the plot, but it's really just showing how you learn to love and move on with your life from from tough situations, grieving all sorts of different things, not just one thing. Um, yeah, it's it's really powerful. I even just thinking about that final <laughs> the final episode literally brings me to tears. Like I can't. But also, I the show it's... is very funny, right? It's oh, very, very funny. funny. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's that's why it's so yeah, it's just every emotion in it. Um yeah. and and sad and happy. It's yeah, it's it's hard not to talk about specifics, but yeah, it's yeah. it's great. All right. Well, that's Fleabag season 2. Uh everyone on the podcast loves it. You should check it out. It's on Prime Video right now. I'm the only one that remembers the Beatles. Hello, I'm Guy Garvey. Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle have joined forces for yesterday. We got them together to talk filmmaking. I always saw Trainspotting just as the Northern Four Weddings. Music. These songs were part of us. And a world without the Beatles. A world without the Beatles would be infinitely worse. The Yesterday Podcast, available from wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? Before we get to our review of Men in Black International, we got to thank all the people that donated to the show. 
just one donor this week. This donor comes uh, donation comes in from John, who writes in uh, shout out to my best friend and fellow slash filmcast listener Nate Volker. We met in high school and have shared the highs and lows of friendship over 10 plus years, falling in love in parallel and recently both becoming fathers. We are currently doing our own Kubrick retrospective over the summer, starting from Flying Padre, and there's no one else I'd rather do it with. Happy Father's Day to Nate, Jeff, and Devendra, and maybe someday Dave will understand Interstellar. <laughs> um, so that message comes in from John. Thanks so much for your donation, John. If you want to support what we do here on the Slash Filmcast, go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast to make a one-time donation. Never donate if it, any, if it in any way causes you hardship of any kind. But if you want to spare some cash and help us defray the cost of seeing films, you can always go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. Let's move on to our review of Men in Black International. We are a rumor, recognizable only as deja vu and dismissed just as quickly. We are the best kept secret in the universe. I know. I want in. You erased my parents' memories, but you didn't get mine. Took me 20 years to find you. How many people can say that? I found you, which makes me perfect for this job. Agent M, we may have a problem in London. Welcome, man. You will be with Agent H. MIB, you Karelian scum. Well, folks, this week I watched a movie directed by F. Gary Gray that was the latest entry in a series spawned by director Barry Sonnenfeld. Uh, (laughs) Despite having a great premise and a solid cast, the F. Gary Gray film ended up being pretty poorly reviewed compared to its predecessor and made significantly less money. But enough about Be Cool, everyone. Wow. (laughs) That's a deep cut. Boom Boom goes goes the dynamite. Let's talk about Men in Black International. Uh, I mean, it is kind of hilarious that F. Gary Gray followed up two Barry Sonnenfeld films with like weaker entries, don't you guys think? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so uh, Men in Black International. Let's read the plot summary here. The Men in Black have expanded to cover the globe, but so have the villains of the universe. To keep everyone safe, decorated Agent H and determined rookie M join forces, an unlikely pairing that just might work. When aliens that can take the form of any human arrive on Earth, H&M embark on a globetrotting adventure to save the agency and ultimately the world from their mischievous plans. So, Lindsay Romaine, uh, uh, one of the reasons I invited you on the podcast is that like, you are a, uh, a big Tessa Thompson fan, right? And, yeah, yeah. And uh, this is uh, Tessa Thompson's starring role. She's one of the, the protagonists. And so, uh, uh, before we get into like what you think of the movie, kind of curious like what your thoughts are on the, the original Men in Black, and, uh, and then we'd love to hear your overall thoughts on Men in Black International. Yeah, so I, you know, going off of what we were talking before, <laughs> Men in Black is definitely like a movie I grew up with. Uh, it's one of like one of the few movies I I really, really watched and rewatched as a kid. So I have a lot of affection for that first one. Uh, It scared me and it like, it was funny and it was everything. Um, I wasn't as in love with the second two. Um, Don't have as many strong memories, but I I always had kind of an affection for this franchise. 
Um, and so, yeah, I was really looking forward to this one because of my love for Tessa Thompson, because of my extreme love for Chris Hemsworth also, and their, you know, camaraderie, their chemistry going off of Marvel. Uh, yeah, I think that it had everything going for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's no way it could have failed. Yeah, um, there's no way. <laughs> but yeah, you I really mean, you have to be, yeah, some sort of idiot <laughs> to screw up this formula. Just, just, I, a I quick, <laughs> just a quick note, though, about Men in Black 1. I mean... That movie still holds up. Uh, it's I, perfect. I, it's I, a perfect. I don't. Movie. I, I cannot. Yeah. You know, Devinder, you got so upset last week about the revisionist history about like X, the first couple yeah. X Men movies. Yeah. Like the idea that Men in Black One is not excellent is really uh, upsetting to me. I mean, it, it is. It is outstanding. It's a perfect summer movie, and it's under a hundred minutes long, which is yeah, ext- like eighty five minutes long. It's tight. It yeah. is extremely rare to find a movie of that length I'm, that's that one good. hour thirty eight minutes. Men in Black. Yeah, one on thirty-eight minutes. Uh, Wait, the, the first one was? It. I never loved it, but the the first one was. You're saying one hundred thirty-eight minutes? No, one hour thirty-eight. Oh, one hour thirty minutes. Okay, I was like one hundred thirty minutes. No, that's all right. Yep. So yeah, the you never loved it though, Jeff. No, but I I don't think it's bad. I just it was just yeah. no, never one of those ones that I fell in love with. Oh, that's too bad. Um, well, Lindsay, uh, you know, really psyched going into this new one. Maybe the Sony has like rebooted the franchise for a new generation. Thoughts on Men in Black International? Yeah, um, I'm going to say it didn't really uh, live up to those expectations <laughs> that I had, which uh, weren't even really that high. There, it wasn't some like astronomical like me expecting it to be <laughs> this wonderful thing. I think I, I maybe even tweeted this. My hopes for it were something along the lines of like Man from Uncle like that came out a few years ago, this yeah. sort of breezy, fun summer movie that I can just sit back and just it doesn't have to have super high stakes, just something where it's like the chemistry of the leads and, you know, I have fun like eating popcorn and watching it yeah and just it just, having like attractive people in like nice yeah. looking clothes mm-hmm. you know bantering and riffing off each alien other like, yeah stuff alien yeah. stuff and that's enough that's all you need to have a good movie right yeah that's really all you need but apparently you definitely need more than that because <laughs> in Men in black international i was not a fan um i found it very just dull like especially considering all of these like perfect ingredients and like not even just Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth, but you also have Liam Neeson and you have Emma Thompson, uh, Kumail. Like you have like all of these people who you're so like, they just, the, you have all the ingredients basically to make exactly the movie I was describing. And instead uh, it just, it really thudded along for me. It mm-hmm. didn't, I didn't connect to any of the characters. I didn't feel like we even spent much time with any of the characters enough to even know who they were. Um, I think it really just kind of coasts on the men in black name and those actors and doesn't really do much work in between. So I was really let down by it. Yeah. How about you, Devendra? Yeah. So I love the first men in black. I do think it's, it's, it is one of those special nineties things. That movie has a perfect combination of like star power and a great sense of discovery too. And I, you know, I was into like paranormal stuff and alien stuff back then too. So seeing like a movie around the men in black is like this weird sort of, uh, you know, police force against alien invasions and stuff. Like I, I think it was very cool. That movie just has a certain amount of magic to it. A lot of that is down to Will Smith. A lot of that's down to like a great script, great direction. Um, two is bad. Three, we reviewed and I really enjoy it. Like, I think there's a lot. It's certainly not as good as the first one, but I think there it has a lot going for it with the whole time travel element and everything. Um, this movie, I don't know what went wrong. Like, it's it's astounding, like because they have 
such a fantastic cast. It's uh, Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson like together again. Uh, I was annoyed that they would just kind of be rehashing the Thor Ragnarok dynamic a little, but this is different. I'm fine with it. But there is no sense of discovery in this movie. It is. It does feel like everything's on autopilot. At one point through this movie, I was practically falling asleep. And that shouldn't happen for a movie that's all about like the wonder of, you know, humans interacting with uh, species from outer space. Uh, Like nothing about it works. I think it's just a weak, weak script. And there's just really nothing moving this movie along. Uh, Whereas the first one is all propulsion. Like you're always moving. Something's always happening. Something new is always happening. It is hard to recreate that sense of discovery. And I think this movie does add a couple of new things that uh, that transcontinental subway thing is kind of cool. I like the the one battle scene where they have where they just start uh, disassembling the car and uh, every bit of the car is a weapon. Like there are cool ideas, but nothing. It doesn't really amount to anything. And certainly uh, there aren't any relationships too. like I think of little things from that first movie, that movie, you know, that that day that uh, Will Smith's character spends just thinking about the fact that he's leaving his entire life behind. And you sit with that. And, you know, as a teenager, I, I thought about the potential of that. Like, it's a movie that made you think at certain times. Yeah. Uh, this movie does not. It's like uh, this character is like, OK, I'm a, I'm a fangirl. I'm ready to do this. I have no life. Uh, let's just go. I, I don't need any second thoughts about any of this. And it's that sort of thing. Like, it's very flippant with this franchise. And uh, I don't know. I find it disrespectful. I am not here for it. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it takes any time with any scenes yep. at all. Like, it just yep. literally, like, you're just going through the plot at rapid speed. And there's no, yeah, you don't sit with anything mm-hmm. at all, uh, which really makes it hard to get invested. <laughs> Despite the film being quite long, in my opinion. Yeah, um, yeah, too long. I mean, there's a moment in the movie when I'm like, well, I guess that all wrapped up nicely. And then it's like, <laughs> oh, wait, there's actually a whole other act of this movie uh, that uh, I wasn't aware of. But uh, <laughs> so I have some more background information. The Hollywood Reporter has a story today where basically anytime a movie does badly, there's a lot of people who speak to The Hollywood Reporter or Deadline and try to like finger point and like blame it on other people. And uh, that certainly happened today at the Hollywood reporter. Um, but uh, before I get to any of that, Jeff Kanata, what do you think of men in black international? Well, Dave, <laughs> I guess you could say my thoughts about men in black international are best summed up in the form of a limerick. Excellent. Uh, Lindsay, if you're not aware. Oh, I'm aware. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited right now. <laughs> Some reboots just need to be banned. They don't seem to be helping their brand. For example, there's these new MIBs, Men in Black, more like Men in Bland. Oh, nice. Nice. Pretty good, Jeff. Pretty good. Very nicely done. Yes, I second everything that has been said so far. Uh, This is a movie that tells you everything about the characters. Yeah. Like, uh, Like, oh my gosh. Chris Hemsworth character is different than he used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Except we saw him how he used to be and he was exactly the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's an entire scene of how he used to be and he's the same flippant, roguish, daring do type of fella that everybody comments on him being so different. He's so different. Uh, Liam Neeson. <laughs> he, he, he was like a father to me, except, all we know is that we just say it over and over. He's like, a, <laughs> we have this relationship like a father to me. It, it is, 
a movie where everything you know about the characters is because someone tells you it yeah. over and over rather than actually experiencing it. Uh, there is no chemistry between these characters that should have tons of chemistry because we've watched these actors have chemistry before. But the movie is so uninterested in giving you anything. Uh, it, it is – it's really bizarre. You You actually have a really clever idea here. You have – Men in Black, a a, a uh, organization that has been established as recruiting people and plucking them out of their lives and throwing them into this crazy thing. And this movie goes, what if there was somebody that has wanted this their entire life? That's a really fascinating concept, mm-hmm. except it is completely unexplored, completely just a throwaway thing that we we are told about this character, but we don't really – invest in the way we did with Will Smith and his and, and go along that journey with him. We the movie is so so much more interested in giving us this wacky plot, this crazy plot that you see coming from a mile away. <laughs> There's a, a quote unquote twist and that is so <laughs> so rote and so obvious that I can't believe that they spend so much time setting it up. Uh because it's like it's the least interesting thing in this movie. There's very little clever. There's very little funny. I saw this movie in a packed theater, and maybe there were a couple of chuckles all from Kumail Nanjiani's lines mm-hmm. uh, late in the movie. Uh, but there are, you know, the movie is 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 just tragically unfunny and really very unclever. You know, like, like one of the things that's so great about MIB movies in the past is like these wacky ideas, these cartoonish ideas of how aliens may have. You know, stayed in. There's a couple of things where they take big swings, but for the most part, they're so concerned with turning Men in Black into James Bond and getting all over the world to justify the international name that half the time the last suit you'll ever need, our characters aren't even in. You know that <laughs> they don't even wear the Men in Black suits for large sections of this movie. They're it. It is really just as you said dull it is dull uh i'm i'm shocked at how just there's no spark of life to this movie and it's it's because of the things you guys have said which is uh they don't take any time they rush to a story that is so uninteresting but they spend so much time laboriously setting up this plot twist that no one cares about because it's like based on backstory that we don't even care or see or it's so weird. Yeah. So, Not a good movie. Uh, so uh, Walter Charles in the chat room, but uh, I, I, I have to say I, I quite appreciated his review of this film at filmfreakcentral.net. Uh, where to, to respond to something you said, Jeff, by the way, you know, he says here, quote, turns out there's a mole in the London office of the men in black. And if you don't know who and why that is, then this is the very first movie you've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you're seeing a movie. They're great. I do wish you started with a good one and hope you'll give the whole experiment another try. End quote. Yeah, very good. Line. Um, and I, I have to say also that like Walter Chaw's review was so scathing that he like my wife was going to go see this movie with me. And she read this review and then said, I'm not going to see this movie anymore. Yeah, you have better um, things to do with your life. Because yeah. uh, in the movie, uh, in the review, Walter says, the picture should come with a cyanide capsule and a hollow tooth, uh, <laughs> which is, I think, is pretty rough, um, but not 100% unfair. So well, let me tell you, though, I don't fall asleep during movies very often, <laughs> but I was definitely like on the borderline of falling asleep 
several times throughout this movie, and I don't know why. I would yeah. say that the main issue for me in this movie – so, Jeff, you, you really articulated well, like, that it's it's a lot of telling and not showing. Tons of telling and not showing in this movie. Um, but the, I think where it comes down to it for me is the tone is a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, I think Men in Black 1 was this really amazing combination of Will Smith being – turning in one of the most charming performances he's ever done. He is just super charming, uh, super charismatic in that role. And the great audience surrogate too, like yeah, because great he surrogate. is discovering all this. Yeah. yeah. And then you have Tommy Lee Jones completely deadpan for pretty much the entire film. And everyone plays it straight. And you I know, think the story right. there is that he, he hated the movie. Tommy Lee Jones hated the movie until like maybe later on during filming. So, him being deadpan is him hating everything, and it works. <laughs> it works. It completely works, and uh, everyone plays it straight. Like everyone takes this entire like it's it's an extremely serious situation that has like occasional moments of levity, as injected by Will Smith. Um, yeah. and that that is like the tone of the first Men in Black that I felt r- worked really well. That is not the tone of this movie. Like the yeah. the two characters T, I'm sorry, H and uh, M, right? Uh, the ones played by uh, Tessa Thompson and uh, Chris Hemsworth are like hamming it up the whole time. You know, they're like, there's this moment at the beginning when like Tessa Thompson picks up a gun and she's like, check please. And it's like, okay. Uh, and you know, like they're, but they're both doing it. They're both doing it. Like both Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson are like joking. And like, even what, like some of their coworkers get in on the action too. And it's just like th- this, the first film relied on this extremely delicate balance between the serious and the silly, you know, the awe-inspiring and the goofy, and this movie has no sense of that balance whatsoever. And like you said, Devendra, like, well, and also it works because we, uh, Will Smith is an audience surrogate, and we're yeah. seeing the goofy through his eyes, and he's reacting like, "Well, that's weird," you know. And yeah. and there's no character that does that in this movie, even it though you have sense. Tessa Thompson yeah. set up to do that because she's the super nerd who's like researched everything. So it's not it's nothing phases her really. It's a shame. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with yeah. you. And uh, this uh, the, the the chemistry, like you guys said, doesn't quite work for me in this movie. I don't know, like, what is it? What is it missing that Thor Ragnarok had? You know, um, uh, but good we, writing, good writing. <laughs> well, speaking of writing, uh, so this Hollywood Reporter story came out today, and uh, it has some pretty interesting details about what the movie was originally supposed to be. Apparently, the original script was good, but according to the story, quote, early drafts of the script were described as being more edgy and timely, tying the story to the current debate surrounding immigration. At one point, a music group, a la the Beatles, were to be the bad guys, with four people merging into one villain. Uh, multiple sources described Parks, who is the producer, who had, who had cut on final cut on the film and who had written movies such as the 1983 classic War Games and the 1992 Robert Redford thriller Sneakers as having a heavy hand in overseeing rewrites, not only during the pre-production process, but also during production as well. Um, and also, apparently, Thompson and Hemsworth hired their own dialogue writers during the course of the movie, which all of it sounds like it made for you know pretty um, messy situation. Yeah. It does feel like a massive missed opportunity in today's day and age, to make a movie called Men in Black International that is in the Men in Black universe and not have anything to say about immigration. Even the original yeah. Men in Black uh, was a really kind of hopeful story mm-hmm. about how Earth could be 
a refuge for people for aliens all around the world and for people just trying to like get on with their life like live life it was such a like a new york story yeah like uh, speaking of immigration like it was that it was the dream of the u.s it was the dream of new york and everything well i don't know what they could have said so much they could have said so much about you know uh united uh the eu kind of fracturing they could have said so much about the world as it is today and at the end of the day like it says nothing and another thing we haven't really mentioned um i think most of the creature effects are terrible most of the creatures look bad it's just bad cg whereas uh the first movie sure it had cg but there's so much great practical stuff i think of like that moment when the baby alien pops out on the in the middle of the highway and it's so it's so perfect and then it's uh you know it's cg and it also spits up the, the one that spits a up lot a of goof. Smith, right? yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah it's interaction like th- this movie has none of that yeah um, a, Rick Baker, Rick Baker, by no? the way, did the effects on Men in Black One. And, yes, uh, yes, legend. Anyway, sorry, uh, Jeff. I was just going to. I was just asking if we're doing spoilers for this or not. No, let's sure, do spoilers. Let's get the spoilers yeah. for Men in Black International starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. You're going to see this coming. No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, there's a few scenes that I want to point out. Uh, one of one of which is there's a there's a moment early on. Well, it takes forever, by the way, for Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson to to meet. But I don't know why, because there's nothing <laughs> interesting happening in in any of that time that seems essential. But when they finally do meet. Uh, well, this is actually much farther after that, after the big, uh, the big street fight with admittedly, like Devinder said, a cool idea of pulling stuff out of that car. That was kind of rad, but, uh, you know, Tessa Thompson gets this thing and the MacGuffin, uh, and, uh, there's a scene where she, where, where Chris Hemsworth evidently lifts it from her somehow even though we ha- he has no idea she has it. Yes. None yes. Of that, nothing is explained about how he got it from her, why he knows she has it. Then the movie literally has no interest in – he just magically got it from her somehow and knows what it is. And it is the weirdest, weirdest moment until another weird moment where th- there's like this smash cut after the big motorcycle chase, which is so dumb. Uh where they land in the desert and then we smash cut to later on and now they're not talking to each other for some reason they have to talk (laughs) through kumail nanjiani's character which is a cute little bit of dialogue play but oh that's when i fell asleep that's when i fell asleep i thought i had missed part of the movie or at least i was like nodding off like wait a minute did i did i miss a whole scene yeah, what's, what's it going seems on like here? it it makes no sense why they all of a sudden have this contentious tete-a-tete not speaking to one another and working on this oh, motorcycle to get it that it motorcycle the, thing aren't you supposed to not have people see all this stuff yeah like <laughs> that's a whole point of this series yeah well she did you know no at the end but there's a whole part where he's just like floating around that motorcycle and like hundreds yeah. of people saw him she also yes. blasts she literally holds it up and blasts like two people like it's, yeah. it's, there's a huge crowd and she doesn't even it doesn't even show her like trying to get as many people as she can she doesn't even try she just does it twice and they like take off i was like okay i, I do think the tone of this movie is really weird where you have camille nanjiani's character like Pawnee. he got most of the laughs in my theater 
right? Like, no one was laughing at any of the banter between Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth, but they were laughing at Camilla Nanjiani. But he's kind of this, like, cute, adorable little creature. He's a creation to sell this movie to kids. Yeah, he's he's a creation to sell this movie to kids. He's supposed to sell this movie to kids. A movie in which a dude gets his face graphically (laughs) melted off in the first act of the film. He becomes a puddle of skin. And, and the camera the dwells ground. on it. The camera like lingers yeah, yeah. on this guy melting uh, into a puddle of like goo. Uh, and those guys evidently are not the bad guys. <laughs> oh, that's another thing, by the way. <laughs> Talking about the, the the show not tell or the tell not show of this movie. We are told the hive is bad. The hive. Yeah. yeah. Bad. We know nothing about them. Zero. The hive. Big bad. Can't let the hive do things. And evidently they compromised Liam Neeson somehow, but we know absolutely nothing about them. There's a different yeah. villain that ends up not being the villain. And at the end, Why we have to stop the hive scene that is supposed to be the big battle with the hive. And like, it cuts away in such an awkward way, I guess it's like, Oh, we're going to go save the day again. Yada, yada, yada. I don't know. Such a good opportunity to like introduce a little bit of uh, terror into what those things are. Look, but, we're, so, are we yeah. supposed to think the reason that they cut away from that so quickly is because somehow the hive swapped out Liam Neeson or did something to his brain to compromise him that we can't see because that ruins the big reveal at the end. I don't know. Yeah. I think that I was going to go back to that tone thing. I I honestly feel like this movie at times, like really wants to just be a straight up kids movie. Like Mm. even the, the aliens, the new aliens, there's like that kind of neon fuzzy one in the beginning. It like literally looks like one of those Thai beanie babies with like the big eyes and like the neon colors that you see in like airports. I was like, it looks like it's trying to appeal to small children. And there were times during the movie where I was like, I probably would love this movie if I was like seven years old. Um, And yeah, don't know plot twists and stuff. But then, yeah, there's this weird undercurrent of like, I don't know, sexual tension. And then like, like you were saying, like some graphic stuff here and there. And it's just like alien sex there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's like just a few like harsh swear words at different times, and it's like I just don't know what it's trying to do. What is happening? Uh, a this movie, feels like a, a movie for kids where Chris Hemsworth fucks a tentacled alien. Yeah. Uh, in one of the first scenes of the movie, so yeah, yeah, they, they won't. Yeah, that. they won't get that. I will say, <laughs> and then later thing, tries just... to pimp out Tessa Thompson in the same for the same purpose. Yeah. Uh, another thing that kind of annoyed me, by the way, this is called Men in Black International, and the only international we get, like we hop to a couple other. Uh, cities and stuff but we don't we don't get a sense of like how men in black works differently elsewhere like the london office is just it, it's a train ride away and uh, it's exactly the same as the new york office there's yeah. like nothing different or interesting about it other than liam neeson right. is in charge well also and liam I, neeson is called high t not just t uh, you see and yeah. a delicious pun i see are there multiple people named h and m because i thought the whole thing was there could only ever be 26 agents right right right, right. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I don't know how that all worked out exactly. Um, but uh, I mean, they they have a high team. Maybe everyone is high in in uh, Britain. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. It really didn't uh, take too much advantage of the international locales. Like ideally, you'd there'd be like a whole, like the set looks almost identical to the you know in feel to the one it in is. the U.S. Right? Like the Kingsman, Kingsman, the Kingsman <laughs> sequel really did that brilliantly of making the different Kingsmen a a caricature of their (laughs) geographical location, you know? Even, like, John Wick. Like, after watching John Wick and seeing this, like, where the hotels are so different and stuff, it's just, like, you couldn't have put, like, any extra effort into that. Yeah. 
That's hard. Here's what know. I'm going to say, though. Here's what I'm going to say I like about the movie, okay? <laughs> After 20 <laughs> minutes of saying how terrible it is, here's what I'm going to say I like about the movie. I actually think the uh, effect of the two dudes, like the two bad dudes, um, mm-hmm. like they, they like look like Nebula or whatever. You know, they look like they're like celestial yeah, it, in some way. I thought that was yeah. a pretty cool visual effect. Uh, cool. So I got to give props to that. And uh, always great to see Rebecca Ferguson in a movie, you know? So can't can't complain about oh, that. Oh yeah, that was her. I I totally didn't even catch that. Man, man. I I will say one thing, I'm still waiting for the series to like capitalize on that idea introduced in the at the end of the first movie where the entire universe is contained in the marble of this alien. Like, come on. Come on. Give us something. It's a profound thought, you know, certainly more yeah. profound than anything we see in this film. Um so yeah any any closing thoughts or any other moments from this movie that we wanted to bring up I think I think we've hit on most of the problems My only has. other kind of resting thing that we haven't really talked about is like when we were talking about you know giving this a, a fresh perspective on this world in addition to like everything else you know there's no real real world commentary or or anything interesting like that but you also have your first like woman men in black character mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it does zero with that at all like besides making a few like oh we should be called the women in black or whatever jokes like there's nothing to even like differentiate tessa thompson's character yeah. uh not that it, it needs to be some like big like i'm a woman thing mm-hmm. but i just you can tell when there's been like no work put into at the end of the first movie that was one thing like wasn't the the doctor right became yeah. an agent too so yeah, there right, was that right. and wasn't we never trinity a, wasn't trinity a men in black or who am i thinking of I think you're thinking of Linda Fiorentino from the first yes. Men in Black. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, Linda. Yeah, Fiorentino. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the first time we've had like a lead, really. You know, mm-hmm. we're seeing the world through the eyes of a woman, too. And like you yeah. would think that there would be some difference there. And it's like, I eh, just, no. I, I will say I feel a bit bad. Uh, also, I'm a huge Tessa Thompson fan. Been following her since like the Veronica Mars days. And even yeah. since that show, like she always had this spark of charisma and something you know, really interesting going on. And she's had a pretty good run, you know, recently between all the Avengers stuff and the Creed franchise and everything. And what Westworld too, I guess yeah, uh, is going to be happening. Um, it's yeah, this is just like one weird thing. Like I wish this being a starring vehicle for her. I wish it was better basically. Cause I want to see her not just as a supporting character. I, yeah. I, have a, I have a question for you, Lindsay. You know, uh, we, we had uh, Aisha Harris on this podcast a few weeks ago and, talking about like Aladdin and how there's like these these new woke songs in the yeah. new Aladdin now. Right. And uh, I think like in uh, Dark Phoenix last week, which is a mo- another movie you saw, and also this uh, movie, uh, Men in Black International, like in, in two successive movies in a row – uh, one in which there's an organization called X-Men and one in which is an organization called Men in Black, <laughs> there's been a comment on how those names are sexist in the actual like text of the film. Uh, and yeah. I, I'm just curious like what your reaction was to that. Like, were you like, yeah, you know, like you like you're right. It should have women in the title or like were you like this is terrible pandering and, and awful. It's terrible pandering. Honestly, I think even Endgame, which is a movie that I really loved, does that too a bit too, where it's doing kind of also what you were saying with the showing and not, or the telling and not showing, which is like, you just kind of like thumb in, you shoehorn these little like phrases and whatever lines in there. And it doesn't do anything to like actually give these women interesting things to do besides just saying that they should be acknowledged. Uh, 
and I don't know how exactly you fix that, you know, hire more women is really just kind of the easy answer. But, um, yeah, I think it's also it's, it's also like tough because the movies themselves are like not great, right? Like, right. If the right. movies were like really good and like the characters were awesome, then uh, it might it might feel differently. But instead, you just have these like kind of weak films with these yeah. woke moments, uh, you know, perfunctorily inserted into them, right? Right. It sticks out a lot more when it's something like that. Uh, when it's like okay, <laughs> like you're doing zero effort, but you're just going to toss in this line that just shows all the like not effort that you're doing it just makes it way more obvious <laughs> it shows all the not effort that you're oh, doing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly all right well um it sounds like it was a failure on pretty much every level uh any guys yeah. and guys and, and girls it, rough summer <laughs> rough rough summer yeah it's been rough. three successive weeks of rough sequels i feel like Summers are always rough, but this feels particularly rough. It's been I don't quite know. a slog. It's been quite a slog. But Jeff, I'm hoping that next week's uh, Toy Story 4 review is yeah. going to break the cycle. Got to oh bounce boy. back. Yeah. Save help us, summer. Help us, Disney Studios. You're our only hope. <laughs> You're our only hope. You're our only hope. All right. Well, those are our thoughts on Men in Black International, which is playing right now in theaters. Uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. This episode was produced and edited by Beatty Zhang. And until next week, Lindsay Romain, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? You can find me at nerdist.com. And how about you, Jeff Kanata? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. Uh, I do a video game podcast called DLC. We just had a bunch of episodes about E3, which was a big, big thing. Um, so check that out at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And I hope you check out my newest adventure, <laughs> which is called The Dungeon Run. It's a live play Dungeons & Dragons show where I'm the Dungeon Master, and I'm really, really proud of it. Uh, we're making up I think a really cool story. People have been responding really positively to it. Uh, I hope you check it out. You can find it on YouTube if you search for The Dungeon Run or as an audio podcast, wherever you get audio podcasts, or you can tune in live and actually impact the story in real time on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific time at caffeine.tv slash The Dungeon Run. How about you, Devendra Hardware? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra. I write about tech at engadget.com. And I'm also doing a tech podcast at nomoretech.net. That's no with a K. I made a cool video last week about uh, Netflix's Always Be My Maybe uh, and all the kind of Asian-American Easter eggs that my wife and I found in that film. You can find that at youtube.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. Next week, Toy Story 4 is the film we're going to review. Break the summer curse, guys. Break the summer curse with Toy Story 4. I will, one, one quick thing before we wrap up, actually, is just the summer movie wager. Uh, got, got to give a little update on that, uh, which is that uh, I am destroying everyone um, <laughs> with 42 points so far. But th- here's the problem. I, I think in pretty much every single case in the history of the Summer Movie Wager, whoever is winning at this stage never wins at the end of the game. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So the numbers got to get shuffled. Because yeah. everything changes so much. I think last year I was way ahead at about this time. You were, uh, no, you you were never leading, out. Jeff. Don't, don't I think lie. it was me. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I remember that being me. Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> I will say that I think so far this summer has been really unexpected. Um, I don't think any of us expected Godzilla to do so bo- poorly. I don't think – even Secret Life of Pets is like 
way down from what yeah, uh, it originally yeah. was supposed to be. The, the Detective good. Pikachu didn't do that well either. Meanwhile, John Wick 3 freaking running away with it. Um, and Devendra looking like he is sitting pretty because he is the person that put uh, Aladdin so high. Uh, he put yeah. Aladdin at number four. Aladdin has made $264 million already. All right. Um, so yeah, it's going to be it's going to be higher than I put it for sure. Yeah. So uh, pretty unexpected. I am crushing right now. But if I had to bet money, I'd think Devendra is probably going to vanquish me this year, which going to be pretty upsetting. Um, uh, Lindsay, anything surprise you about the summer's box office so far? Anything that you uh, you were really uh, happy about or, or sad about? Um, not box office wise so much. I mean, yeah, I think Aladdin definitely surprised me too, just because I thought the trailers were pretty dismal. So I didn't think it was going to like actually take off. So I think it would be that one, but I'm really curious. I'm really anxious to see what Lion King does. That's the one that I feel like is the big, like if Aladdin did so well, it seems like yeah. that could I just I think like, Lion crush. King could do double Aladdin yeah, business. Easily. So, yeah. Like it's going to be crazy. Um, and I think it'll be equally good in terms of how uh, creatively uh, meaningful that movie is. So, put right. that out there, too. Um, okay. Well, uh, thanks for tuning into the Slash Filmcast. We'll see you next week. We watch the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, slide bad. It's the Slash Filmcast. For all the news and the movies coming out, because you know that it's the thing worth talking about. Get enough eye-popping, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping reality TV. It's the best. Then head to Hey You, home of reality on demand. Stream and download the latest episodes from shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives, same day as the US. What's more fun than that? Or binge old faves like The Simple Life and The Hills. That's hot. Hey You, reality on demand. Start your one-month free trial now.